Amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 47, uh, that will be our text this Lord's Day as we find ourselves now in these final chapters in the book of Genesis. And if you've been with us uh, through this study, uh, you know that things don't always turn out the way we might think they will. In those early chapters in Genesis, especially when we got into Genesis 12 and and we read about God's call in the life of Abram, uh, soon to be called after that, Abraham. He, he told him that he was going to give him a land and a people. And there's this land-people promise that follows down through generations then from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob. And so you expect the book of Genesis to end with Jacob and his descendants in this promised land uh, with this fruitful, flourishing family. And yet, where we find ourselves at the end of Genesis now in chapter 47 is that Jacob and his family are now in a foreign land. They have left the land of promise during a famine as God has led them, and they have gone to Egypt, a land that didn't worship the one true God. They are not at all where you would expect them to be when you begin the book of Genesis, and yet they're exactly where God's called them to be. And I think that many of us can identify with that in part. We, we don't always end up where we thought we would. Towards the end of the journey, when we look back, many of us look and say, well, this, this isn't where I thought I would be, but by God's grace that His hand has been upon me, this is where He would have me. And that's what we see in Jacob's life. And I believe we're able to, to see that in Jacob's life and to see, for example, in today's text, faithfulness in Jacob's life because God gave him a different perspective than many have. Most of us walk through this life with a very temporal perspective. We focus on the temporary, yet I think what we see in Jacob's life is an eternal perspective, and I think that's what he calls each of us to have. And so as we look through God's Word today and look through this text, I want you to consider that. Consider what, what does it mean to live life in light of eternity and consider what it might be that God's calling you and I to do along those lines. Think of that as we look to this text. So we're going to read through this now, Genesis 47, verses 1 through 31. And if you are able, if you would stand at a reverence for the Word of God as I read this text for us today. Uh, no long list of confusing names like last week. Uh, so we'll walk through this now. This is God's inspired word to us at this point when Joseph and now his family are with him there before the Pharaoh in Egypt beginning in verse one this is what God's word says so Joseph went in and told Pharaoh my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan they are now in the land of Goshen then excuse me they are now in the land of Goshen and from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. 
Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the, day, are the, years, the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojournings are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in all the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, their flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us in our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their field because the famine was severe on them, and the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made them servants from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priest had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you in your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for your field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please the Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should receive the fifth. The land of the priest alone did not become the Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they attained and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. 
But let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. And Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. If you would pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your holy word. And we pray, God, that you might teach us through it today. And Lord, that you might draw us into a deeper understanding of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We pray for this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. By nature, I am not one who can see very well. In fact, if I take off these glasses this morning, I don't know who any of you are. You could all go to sleep right now and I would have no idea... In fact, some of you in the back are blending in with the pews and you could just as well get up and leave and as far as the balcony goes, I can't really tell anything up there. Uh, Without my glasses, I can't even read the Bible. In fact, my sight is so bad that in the morning when I don't have my glasses on, the alarm clock that sits beside my face with the big red letters, I don't even know what time it is unless I hold it up to my face. I am severely nearsighted, and so without the aid of these glasses, I can only see what's right in front of me. I've thought at times what my life would be like if I lived in a different time, if I lived in a time before the technology of things like glasses. With such poor vision, my life would be limited to only being able to see those things that were right there in front of me. And I've thought about all the things I've seen in my life that I never would have been able to see if it weren't for the perspective that these glasses are able to give me. And as I've thought about that, I've thought about how so many of us, I think, we we go through life in a similar way. We go through life just looking at the immediate things, the things right in front of us. We don't really look ahead, and if we do look ahead, we don't look very far ahead. And yet God's Word tells us to look with a very different perspective than the world. And God's Word, in a sense, to us is like these glasses are to me. It it helps us to look beyond what's right there in front of us and look really down the road and look at the big picture because God's Word is able to give us a a perspective radically different than the world's. In fact, God's Word is able to give us that perspective that is eternal. A perspective that helps us to evaluate life and all the things in it in light of not just this world, but in light of all eternity. And in light of God's great eternal plan for man that we see laid out for us in the very foundation of His Word, in those beginning chapters of Genesis where we see God in His goodness to Adam and Eve give them that sanctuary of the garden, and yet in their rebellion, we see God in His goodness and His mercy and His grace promise them an offspring that will come who will crush the head of the enemy and laying out for them then the foundation of the Gospel right there in the midst of their rebellion. When we put on our eternal perspective glasses, we we can see that in His Word and we can see that in our world and in life and we can evaluate things, not just in in light of the here and now, we can evaluate them in light of, Lord, how, how does this decision affect eternity? How can I make this decision in light of eternity? And friends, when we have that perspective, what helps us through those times of suffering and grief and it also puts into perspective those times of, of joy and happiness. It helps us to see everything in the perspective 
of God's greater plan. And yet that's not the perspective we're born with any more than I came out of the womb with these glasses on. It's a perspective that we gain as we look to God's word. And so this morning, as we look to this chapter, this text, I want you and I to consider what does it mean to have an eternal perspective? How do we see Jacob having an eternal perspective? And how does that then affect how we live our lives? We'll begin by looking at the first point that I've put there in your text about an eternal perspective. You see, an eternal perspective gives us a a missionary mindset. When you hear that term missionary, when you think about what what we consider to be missions and to be a missionary, most of us have a very New Testament understanding of that. We, We think about passages like Matthew 28. Matthew 28, we have the Great Commission where Jesus calls us as disciples to go to the nations and make disciples of the nations. And we think about passages like Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where there again you see Jesus giving this this commission and this promise of His Holy Spirit upon His followers. And He says one of the things the Spirit will do was the Spirit will empower us to be witnesses, ultimately He says, to the ends of the earth. And so when we think about this concept of missions and being a missionary, most of us, again, we think of the New Testament, we think of passages like those, and yet, when we think of what it means to have a really biblical perspective of missions, we have to go back to the Old Testament. Because God doesn't just start thinking about the nations in Matthew chapter 1. God's heart for the nations is apparent all the way back in the beginning. In fact, we've seen it very clearly in the book of Genesis. You think, for example, of God's call on Abram. God says to Abram, Genesis 12, he says to him, all right, listen, you're you're going to be the one through whom a great people come, a great possession comes, and what does he tell him? He says, you will bless those who bless you, you will curse those who curse you. And ultimately, his call on Abram is to be a blessing then to the nations. And we see that call to bless the nations follow down through that lineage from Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob. And I believe having that eternal perspective then allows Jacob to be a blessing to the nations. Look at what we see in this text today, how he is a blessing. We're introduced in chapter 47 again to this scene we left last week where you've had uh, Jacob and his family coming before Pharaoh. And if you'll remember, Joseph had given his father and his brother some very specific instruction. He had told them, now when you go before Pharaoh, and he asks you what your occupation is, you're to tell him shepherds. And then the text tells us, you know, shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. And you read those two things, and you think, okay, that that seems a little awkward. I mean, Joseph, is he setting up his family? Why does he want his family, his brothers and his father, to go before Pharaoh and tell him that their occupation is something that the general Egyptian public detests? When we see it in the bigger context, you understand it's because Joseph wants to make sure that Pharaoh sets the Israelites aside. That they're set aside over here in this land of Goshen, which we'll see will be really an incubator for the Israelites where they will prosper and they'll be fruitful and they'll multiply. And they'll do it separate from the Egyptians in a way that they weren't experiencing in the land of Canaan. 
Because what we've seen is in the land of Canaan, there's this continual threat to the people of God as they're tempted to intermarry with Canaanites. And so now God takes them in this famine all the way down to Egypt, and He takes them before the Pharaoh, and He takes them into this occupation He's had them in that's going to be detestable to the Egyptians, where they say, well, we need to separate them from us. And God's going to use that in an amazing way. But along the way, notice Jacob's perspective and Joseph's perspective. Joseph brings his brothers. All these things go as planned. He picks out a few of them. They go before Pharaoh. And what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh says, yes, you can have the land of Goshen. You can go there and you can dwell there. He reiterates to Joseph, listen, the best of Egypt is yours. You just think about what an amazing thing that alone is. There's a famine going on. This is not a time of feasting in the land of Egypt. This is not a time to be generous for Pharaoh. But God is so working through His people that He takes this pagan ruler and uses him to bless His people that they might be separate and they might be fruitful and multiply in the land of Goshen. And so at that point, Jacob and Joseph and the brothers can just pack up and say, okay, we're good. But notice what happens. The scripture tells us then that Joseph, verse 7, brings Jacob, his father, in to the Pharaoh. Now, at this point in the text, this really isn't that necessary. Pharaoh has already said to Joseph's brothers, you can have this land, you can dwell there. In fact, he said, if there's some able bodies among you, hey, be in charge of my livestock too. But now you've got Jacob being brought before him, and the question is why? Well, some could say, you know, this is simply customary. You know, Jacob's the patriarch, and so it's customary that he would come before the Pharaoh. And then when you read how Jacob blesses him, you can think, well, that's, that's just kind of a customary thing. He's probably just saying nice words to him. But, but I think there's something probably a little more going on here. I think there's a bigger context here in this blessing that Jacob is putting on Pharaoh. I think what Jacob is doing is what God had called Abraham to do in Genesis chapter 12. God says to Abram, Abraham, listen, those who curse you curse, those who bless you bless. Go and be a blessing to the nations. And what plays out here in Genesis 47? They go to Egypt, and what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh blesses the people of God. So what are the people of God called to do? They're called then to bless Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And what a blessing they are. I mean, big picture here in this passage, there's a lot of wheeling and dealing that goes on, but what's the end of it? The end of it is the Egyptians are saved because of the people of God. And what happens here with Jacob and Pharaoh, what happens is that Jacob puts a blessing on Pharaoh, and I think that is evidence that Jacob's perspective is one focused on eternity and not just on the temporal, because if Jacob's focus was on the temporal, imagine what it might have been. If he was just focused on the here and now, you can imagine him grumbling and complaining all the way to Egypt. And when he gets there before Pharaoh, being dragged in by Joseph, and you can imagine some of the things he might complain about. His whole life has been focused on the promised land, and God has taken him from it. His whole life has been focused on he's this great patriarch, and God's going to bless him with kings, the Scripture says, and yet there's not enough food that in his possession he can feed his family of 70. And now he has to go before a pagan king, a pagan ruler, to get provision. Yet his perspective is not one of grumbling and complaining. 
his perspective is one of being a blessing. And ultimately, I think what his perspective is, is what God calls all our perspective to be, to, to be a blessing to the nations. And not just to those in our own household. You know, Jacob here isn't just looking out for, for his people. Jacob here is blessing Pharaoh and blessing the Egyptians. And God calls us to do the same. And yet that call, I believe, has come under great threat and great fire in the church of Jesus Christ. I saw just this last few weeks a a great threat in the way that people in the church and outside of the church have spoken, have written about the call to missions, the call to go to the world. Some of you have followed this, this story of two medical missionaries who have been brought back from West Africa because they had Ebola. If you know much about it, you know what a deadly disease that is. You know how it is ravishing that area of Africa. You know the threat that it brings with it. And, and as they've been brought back, you've had all these voices, both from inside the church and outside of the church. You, you've had some who've spoken simply in fear. A fear that something will now happen in our nation. Fear that you know we shouldn't bring these people back because what they were doing, that was a good thing, but, but they, have to, they have to stay there because we have to keep separate here. There, there's a fear that motivates that. But what's more concerning to me is those who haven't just spoken from fear, but I believe have spoken from ignorance. And in their ignorance, this is what they've said. They shouldn't have gone there in the first place. We've got enough needs here. Why are we going there? Look at what a terrible place that is. Look at what a a, a death place that is. Why in the world would we send our missionaries to parts of the world where they're going to die and get deadly diseases? We've got needs in our own backyard, don't we? And I say that's a position of ignorance because it's a position of ignorance. Because it's ignorant to what God's Word teaches us. Now I realize it's a position of comfort. It's a position where we can say, listen, we we need to stay safe at home. And are there needs here? Absolutely. But the God of the world has called us to go to the world. He's told us not to ignore the needs in our backyard, but to meet them as we look to meet the needs of the world. And yet these, these voices I've heard, many of them outside of the church, I'm sad to say I think they echo what I often hear inside the church in regards to this whole concept of missions. Well, why do we need to go there, Pastor? Aren't there needs here? Now, oftentimes, the very people who ask me that question, honestly, aren't doing much to meet the needs in either place. Well, why... Should we risk sending our children and our grandchildren and our loved ones there? It's, it's dangerous. Bad things could happen. Why not just stay here? That is a position of comfort. But it's also a position where we ignore what God's Word calls us to do. And I think what we see in Jacob, and I think what we need to pray that we'll see in our lives and in our church is a perspective that focuses more on eternity and making decisions in light of eternity than we make them in light of our comfort and of temporal things. And if we are to make decisions in light of eternity, here is the biblical reality. People will die. People will suffer. People will go to places around the world 
that they may not come back from. If the Great Commission is to be fulfilled, people will die for the sake of the gospel. And if our perspective is just on the here and now and the temporal, we will not send people around the world because we will not risk that. But if we take a position where we are focusing on eternity and on God's great call to go to the nations, then we will take that risk. And people may die, but the gospel will be proclaimed. And like a nation being saved through one who blesses, we will see nations saved through the Great Commission. Because what West Africa needs most right now is not a cure for Ebola. What West Africa needs most right now is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because whether you die of Ebola or diabetes, you and I and they are going to die. And we're going to stand before holy God. And what are we going to say? Well, God, I really felt like you wanted me to be comfortable... I got my kids through college. Are we going to say, Lord, as best I could, I obeyed your word, and I gave, and I prayed, and as you led me, I went so that people might hear the gospel. Will we have the opportunity as we do that then to see how God uses us and uses others to save people around the world. I think that's what he's called us to do. But that will only come if we have that, that mindset focused on eternity, that, that eternal perspective. And as we do, there's other things that come from that. For example, in Jacob's life here, we see, point two, an eternal perspective. Then it, it focuses us on the greater plan of God. It, it takes our eyes off of just the here and now, and it puts our eyes on the, on the bigger picture. Notice the bigger picture that's kind of coming to fruition here in this text. If we're just focused on the here and now, maybe we miss it. What we see here happen now in verses 13 through 26 is all these Egyptians are now suffering. Now you remember, God had given this this vision, this excuse me, dream to Pharaoh, and Joseph had interpreted it, and he had said, you're going to have years of feasting, you're going to have years of famine, and so he lays out this plan. If you'll do this during the years of feasting, we're going to survive the years of famine. But in order for that plan to come to fruition, it it takes leadership. And and God calls Joseph to be that leader. And so now we're at a point in the famine where things are really bad. And perhaps many Egyptians heeded that word. (laughs) Perhaps some of them didn't. Perhaps some of them are, are like us now, honestly. We don't really think about the bottom falling out. We really don't prepare for a rainy day. And so when it comes, we're not ready for it. And so perhaps for some of the Egyptians, they they heard about Joseph and they heard about this proclamation, but they didn't really take it real seriously. So during those years of feasting, they're, they're kind of feasting some. And now as the famine set in and the foods run out, they're suffering and they're hurting. But God uses his Joseph to, to save them no matter what their perspective had been. So they, they come to Joseph and they say, okay, listen, our money's run out. We don't have any more money to buy grain. Joseph says, all right, bring me your livestock. A year later, we, we run out of livestock. We won't have any money, we won't have any livestock. 
We've just got our land and ourselves. And what ends up happening through this is the Egyptians are suffering. God still preserves them and saves them as they essentially enslave themselves to Pharaoh. So what's the point of that? I mean, it's a long part of the narrative. Why does God give us this? I think he gives it to us in part so that we might then understand what's going on in verse 27. All that happens to the Egyptians in this land. You've got the Israelites who are foreigners who have now come to this land. It's not their land. It's not their people. And yet God's preserving them. And He stuck them over here in Goshen. So as the Egyptians are suffering now greatly, what's going to happen to God's people? Verse 27, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it. And they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. I think we're given in part all that narrative about what's going on with the Egyptian so we might realize how amazing it is that in the midst of that, what's going on with God's people? They're flourishing and they're multiplying. Again, think about that. From Abraham to the time that Jacob leaves the land of promise, you've got about two centuries. And there Jacob goes with his 70 descendants. In the next four centuries in this land of suffering and enslavement, they're going to be fruitful and they're going to multiply. As I said last week, I think we see in this text today, God rewards the faith of his people, but not so much in the ways we expect. This is not the flourishing and the fruitfulness that Jacob expected, and yet it's exactly what God does. And as we look at the bigger picture, we understand why. Because God now is preserving his people. I mentioned it last week, that this is an ark of sorts. They're going to survive the famine in it. They're going to be fruitful and multiply in it. And when they leave in the Exodus, they're not going to leave with a family of 70. They're going to leave with approximately 2 million people. And God's going to do that in this land of suffering. And I believe Jacob and his uh, son Joseph see this because they've got a bigger perspective on what God's doing. And that's what God's eternal perspective gives us, is that ability to focus and see, okay, God, this isn't what I thought was going to happen, but look at what God's doing. And as you and I really do that, as we really look to see, God, what are you doing? As we take our focus off of ourselves and how we thought it was going to work out and how we think it should be, and we start to focus on, okay, God, what are you doing here? Then I think we see just these these amazing little drops and nuggets of God's grace and mercy in our lives. And I think we see one here. Verse 28. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Just think about that for a moment. You go back and you have an old, dying Jacob who has lost his son Joseph, who's at a point now where he's fearful that that he's lost his other sons, his other son Simeon, where his sons are now telling him, in order to get Simeon back, in order to provide for our family, you've got to let us take Benjamin too. You think about Jacob at that moment and all that he has lost. And how many times in his mind he has probably gone back to those 17 years he had with his son Joseph. The text tells us Joseph was 17 years old when, when God led him then to go after his brothers, ultimately to go into slavery. And now you fast forward and what's happened. Jacob's now in the land of Egypt. Remember what he thought was going to happen? 
I'm going to go there to die. It's essentially what he says. I want to see Joseph, and then I want y'all to go pick out the casket. <laughs> I'm going to die in the land of Egypt if I make it that far. And what does God do? God in His goodness and His grace gives Jacob 17 more years with his son Joseph. And I think that's, an, that's just an amazing thing when you consider what God gives him there. All those years that he thought his son was dead, on that journey to see him, all those thoughts he had about, I just want to see him and then die, God had a bigger picture, a bigger plan, a greater perspective, and he basically says to Jacob, I'm going to give you another 17 years with your son. And he does. And I think that's a wonderful thing and a beautiful thing. And I think God does those things in our lives too. But the reality is, I think we miss them so often. Because we're so focused on how we thought things would work out and how they haven't worked out that way. And we're so busy grumbling and complaining and anxious and worried that we don't stop and consider that God truly is sovereign. (laughs) And that means He's in control of everything. And that when things don't work out like we planned on them, what that means for us as believers is God had a different plan than we had. And what we see in Scripture time and time again is God's plan is greater than ours. But if we just focus on the temporal, we we miss that. But if we look and we focus on the eternal, we get to see that. And not just that, but point three, that eternal perspective then places our hope ultimately in the resurrection. That, That eternal perspective places our hope in the gospel of Jesus and on what He is doing and will do. Look at what we see here. These last few verses. That the time comes near then. Israel, Jacob, he's had these 17 years with his boy. And this time's come now where he basically says to his son, Okay, listen, if I found favor in your sight, he, 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 makes, this, he makes Joseph make this commitment to him. Put, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly with me. We, we've talked about this. We, we've seen this before. A little different than how we make contracts today. But it's significant. Because what Jacob is doing with his son is he's bringing him right back to that promise of Genesis 3.15. He's bringing him right back to that focus on the offspring that will come that will crush the head of the enemy. He is reminding his son Joseph that there's more at stake here than just burying him in the family cemetery. (laughs) So see, for us... We just look at the, the here and now. That's kind of how we view this. It's okay, well, yeah, Jacob just wants to be buried beside his family. You know, we want that, don't we? You walk around cemeteries here in Bloomfield, and you'll see the grave sites of people who were born and raised here, and then you'll see others who you don't even really know who they are because when they got to a certain age, they, they moved away, and they didn't come back, so they came back in a casket. Because that's kind of how we do things. You know, you're buried there with your family. And if we're not careful, we just kind of view that as the, this is that. That Well, Jacob just wants to be buried with his family. But there's a lot more going on here, friends. And he's calling Joseph's attention to it. He's calling our attention to it. He's going back to the promise of God. And the promise of God was what? An offspring will come that will crush the head of the enemy. And Joseph, that offspring, hasn't come yet. But he's gonna. He's calling Joseph back to the promise God made. One day they will be a great people 
and a great land, and they're not a great people yet. And the only land that Abraham actually owned when he died is that land that he's buried in that Jacob wants to go back and get buried in. And, and a temporal perspective looks at that and thinks, well, what is the point of that? Well, what is the point of carrying bones and placing them in the ground? What hope is there in those old, dead, dry bones? And then the gospel comes to light and helps us to see there's a great point to that. In fact, I think we get a vision in part of it in Ezekiel 37, and this is a text I want to leave you with this morning. Chapter 37 of Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, upon Ezekiel, and he, he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. So what's the point? <laughs> Jacob wants to have his bones carried back to where Abraham and Isaac's bones are at. It's just going to be this, this valley of bones. What, what's the point in a valley of bones? Why does God take his prophet Ezekiel and place him in a valley of bones? Well, if you've read Ezekiel 37, you know exactly why he does it. Because what God then does is, says, okay, Ezekiel, I want you to go and I want you to speak my word over these bones. I want you to prophesy over them. And as he does, an amazing thing takes place. It, it, is, it is hard to visualize. These bones come to life and flesh comes upon them. And then God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am Lord when I open your graves and I raise you from the graves. What does that mean? It means that Jacob, when he says to his son, I want you to make this oath to me, knows that he's not just going to be buried in a valley of dry bones. He knows God will do what he says he will do. And God will put flesh on those bones because there's a promise he has given. They will be a great people. And they will have a land to possess. And it will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we, the church today, have been grafted into that hope. That is the land we will possess as well. And that is where our hope lies. And if Jacob's hope is in a deed, then Jacob dies with no hope. But if Jacob's hope is in a promise, as I believe it was, Jacob dies with great hope. Which one is your hope in today? Is your hope in a bank account, a deed, a relationship, the here and now? Is your hope in, well, God, I thought it was going to happen like this, and it better happen like this? <laughs> or is your hope in something greater? Is your hope in the gospel of Jesus, who says, friend, in this world, you will have trouble, and you will suffer. But friend... I have overcome this world. In this world, it's going to look like bones in a grave. But friends, I bring bones to life. I make dead things alive. 
I make old things new. That's the hope we have in the gospel. And it comes through the understanding that in all of this, in this eternal perspective, God has a great plan, and His plan is for the redemption of His people. And that redemption comes as we repent, as we die to how we thought it would be, as we die to this notion that somehow we can be good enough and work hard enough. And we come to see we're just another set of bones in the valley. But as we repent and turn from our sin, God brings those bones to life. The Scripture says He takes our cold heart of stone and He gives us a living, beating heart. Ezekiel 37 is just another picture of what we see throughout the Word of God. God gives us life, friend. And maybe it's not the life you thought you were going to get. But I challenge you, if you study the Word of God, not to consider that it is a life greater than the life you thought you would get. Because it's not a life that ends when they put you in the grave. (laughs) It's a life that goes on for eternity. And as we come together as a church, when we lift our voices and sing, friends, that's just a foretaste of what we will experience from all eternity with God as we worship Him, as we trust in Him, as we follow Him, as we walk by faith with Him. He gives us that opportunity this Lord's day this side of eternity to have just a glimpse of that will you will I will will we trust in him will we live in light of eternity are we going to hold on desperately to how we thought it would be and to what we think should happen what makes us most comfortable that's the challenge for each of us this Lord's day and I can I pray that you will consider that challenge in light of God's Word. If you would, pray with me. Father God, we, we thank you for those we've seen walk before us who walk by faith. And, and Lord, we know the goal this morning is not to be like Jacob or Joseph. It's to see what, what were they pointing us towards. Our goal is not to be like the sign. It's to see what does the sign point us towards. And, and Jacob and Joseph, they point us towards hope and a promise they point us towards the gospel and lord you tell us in your word that they they died not not having fully received it but lord now we see it and we can receive it and we can respond to it lord we're we're not in egypt we're we're not separated out we're we're not going to the grave going what happened We, we see your word we see the truth of it we see the promises of it it is here for us today so Lord, I pray for any this morning who's yet to repent and put their trust and faith and hope in Jesus. I pray they would, Lord. And I pray for those who maybe have done that, but along the way, maybe they've lost their perspective. Maybe they've taken the glasses off. Maybe they're just focused on the here and now. Lord, would you help us all to live in light of eternity, to make decisions in light of eternity. Lord, to do all we do in light of eternity. Lord, that only comes as you work among your people. So, Lord, I pray you would work among your people today. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.